Good morning, Bethel Church. Man, is it beautiful outside or what? I mean, there are days, I say this confessionally, there are days and I think we should just go, church over, let's go worship outside. But not today. You guys are stuck here with us. So please pray with me. Our Father, I'm so thankful that we, your church, your people, can gather together for worship. And I'm grieved this morning, even as um, we have woken up to the news that there was an attack on Christians in Egypt who had gathered for worship. 40 killed and 100 injured. And even as we have sung songs this morning, Lord, I rejoice that you are the Lamb the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Humility and vulnerability and fragility that sin might be crucified and killed in you. But we've also sung about the fact that you are the lion. And this morning, if I'm honest, Lord, I'm thankful for the lamb, but I'm longing for the lion's return. Uh, I pray, God, that you would comfort Christians around the world that we would place our hope, our confidence, our trust in you, that we would not become angry, hostile, or vindictive, but that we would trust in the wisdom of our God and of the lion who will return in power and glory and splendor and will set all things to right. And we do long for that day. Lord, in the meantime... I pray that we would love well, that we would know you well and have confidence and trust in our God who is sovereign over all, even events like these. That we would have confidence in your wisdom and in the justice of your return. Lord, this morning I pray that you uh, would just speak to us, encourage, comfort, and show us even more and more who you are. Uh, that you might shore up our confidence. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever had a crisis of faith? A crisis of faith. Maybe last week your pastor preached an exceptionally long sermon, and you weren't sure you were going to make it through, at least with your faith intact. So maybe that was your crisis of faith. Uh, maybe there really was been a serious time in life where you struggled, where your faith wobbled, where what was once secure um, faced a challenge you weren't sure you are going to recover from. Maybe a person that you respected, that you trusted in some way disappointed you and it really shook you to the core. Uh, or maybe you've experienced the untimely loss of a loved one and you've been forced to deal with the question of if God is good, how could he allow such a thing? Uh, maybe you've witnessed some kind of an atrocity or some kind of evil. You've been just up close and personal with it and seeing it made you question the presence of God or the activity of God or the goodness of God when such a thing is going on. Uh, maybe for you, you just struggle to experience the reality of Jesus' presence in your life. And so, you know, you kind of look at the Bible and what it says and what theology says, and you go, yeah, that all makes sense. I just don't experience it. And maybe that's the challenge for you. 
Uh, or maybe just life hasn't turned out like you had hoped. You thought that believing and trusting in Jesus would somehow make an easier life, that somehow you would be going with the grain if he is, after all, king of kings, and you're on his side, then things would maybe go your way a little more than they seem to. Um, if I'm honest with you, there was a season in my life that I uh, had a bit of a crisis of faith. Uh, it was a long time ago. Uh, I was a freshman in college. And you guys know I, I was privileged to grow up in a Christian home. And I got to go to a, a Christian school uh, all the way from second grade all the way through high school. And then a Christian university. I had lots of instruction in my life. But when I, when I left home and I went to college... I was sort of confronted with this feeling that there have been a lot of things that I have been taught from my, from my family, from my school, from my church, from friends, that I, I felt like I had accepted almost too easily, if that makes sense. Things came easy and they hadn't really been tested and so I just sort of believed them, but I went off to school feeling like that I had some thin beliefs. And while I had accepted them as true, I hadn't had enough challenge in life to see if they kind of bore themselves out to be true. God was really gracious that during that season, my freshman year, he put around me some really dear believers and some close friends that were gracious with me that allowed me to kind of question and process and to do so safely. They weren't, you know, knocked off guard by the fact that I had some questions and they just kind of walked with me through that. And I praise God that, you know, towards the end of that, I I, I found confidence in what I had been taught and I found a child just faith had grown up and become robust and strong. Um... But I had, that was my own, my own experience of a crisis of faith. I think it's common. I think if we were to go around the room and ask, I think almost every one of you could say, yeah, there was this season, and maybe it's upon you even right now. I think Matthew 11, where we are this morning, is really a fascinating passage because here we find a very unlikely candidate that would go through a crisis of faith. It's John the Baptist. Of all people, the forerunner to Christ And yet here we find him at this moment going through a crisis of faith. Look at Matthew 11, 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, note that, in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? That's quite a question. It's surprising that it would come from John the Baptist. And basically, we get a sense as we kind of read between the lines that Jesus just didn't fit John the Baptist's expectations. Uh, And the reality is, Jesus may not fit our expectations either. Uh, I, I think if we were, each of us asked... Uh, if we could create a God of our own, now first of all, we would then be God and our creation would not be, of course, but we'll just leave that aside for the moment. But if we were each of us asked to create a God of our own, I think probably many of us would fashion a God that is different than the God that we find in the scriptures. There might be some trait, that, some attribute that we would change or that we would add or that we would delete. Um, probably all of us would change, it in some, change him in some way. Uh, I love the quote by Blaise Pascal who said that God has created man in his own image and man continues to try to return the favor. <laughs> All right. um, but the reality is I think most of us would probably change something. We, we might say, I wish that God were more visible. 
Be great to be able to see him. That would really bolster my faith. Or, uh, I wish that God were more relational. I feel like I, I strive towards him, but I don't always feel him moving towards me. And I feel like there's this goal for this distance. And I, I wish that I found a more relational God. Or maybe you would say, I wish we had a God who intervened in the world more than he does so that events like this morning's attack on Christians in Egypt don't happen or not without immediate and swift vengeance from God. Or maybe we would say, I I wish that there was a God who was more understandable or that we could understand him more. I mean, we might just think about the triune nature of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each one is not, you know, the other, and yet all are God. Did you get that? I don't quite have that yet. And maybe we think, I wish God were just a little simpler to understand. Or maybe we don't like some of his teachings. Uh, We wish we could just kind of cut and paste through our Bible a little bit. Don't like that one. Don't like that one. Uh, Thomas Jefferson did that. He didn't like miracles. He basically went through his Bible and cut out of his Bible all of the passages that related to miracles. I wonder what he had left. You know, I, it's a pretty thin Bible. Or maybe we just don't like the fact that he is God and we are not. And I suspect that that's what most of it boils down to. Um, what we find here is that John the Baptist himself has some misgivings about Jesus and actually questions Jesus about his ministry. And again, I think this is kind of shocking because John the Baptist is supposed to be the forerunner to Christ. He's supposed to prepare the way and let everybody know that, that Jesus has arrived, that the Son of God, the Messiah, has arrived. In fact, he's already made some pretty, pretty big, bold claims, right? Uh, he has said, when Jesus emerged on the scene while John was out in the desert baptizing, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's already made that claim. That's his statement of faith. And, and think about the things that he has seen since. I mean, as he talked to his people out in the desert, his followers, he told them, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, who's the thong of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. Or, or then when, he, when Jesus does come to be baptized, he says, shall I baptize you? And then when he does agree to do so, he hears the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and he sees the Holy Spirit descend as a dove and light on Jesus' shoulder. So how does a man who has seen and experienced and related to God in his midst the way that he has come up with this question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? That's kind of crazy, isn't it? How does John ask that question? And so by all appearances, this really is a crisis of faith. And the reality is that John was expecting a king who would come and establish his earthly kingdom. Like so many of his fellow countrymen, they were looking to be delivered from Roman oppression. They were looking for a powerful political king who would come and immediately establish his earthly kingdom. He was looking for one who would deliver them from oppression and bring peace and bring shalom. And that is what they wanted. They wanted a triumphant Jesus. And that's not at all the circumstances that John finds himself is. Remember, where is, where is this question coming from? Where is John at this moment? He's in prison. He's in jail. And you can imagine him thinking, if we put, him, put ourselves in his situation, we can imagine, 
okay, I am the blessed forerunner of Christ. I've committed my life to preparing people for his arrival. I thought he came, and now here I am in chains. You know, you can imagine the questions. Jesus, I thought you were pretty much going to run this town. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm speculating a bit here, but I would imagine John thinking, I thought I might be kind of, you know, by your side, maybe a little bit privileged. Uh, again, I'm just speculating. But instead he finds himself in chains. And it seems that he, as he looks at Jesus, he just doesn't find him to be very kingly. Um, and I, I love, this is such an honest moment in the scriptures, and I, I find that the scriptures are just peppered with honesty and, and realness and awkward moments like this, which really to me is authenticating of their, of their believability and their truthfulness. Uh, this is not a novel that somebody neatly put together. There's some strange moments in the scriptures because there's strange moments in reality, right? This is one of them. You can imagine John's anxiety. Uh, you know, here his ministry has been short-lived. It's been, he's been devoted to Christ. There was one commentary I was reading this last week who, who called his ministry meteoric, just like a flash across the sky, totally committed to Christ, and yet now he finds himself in prison, and he is, his fear is legitimate. Maybe he has done all of this for nothing. Maybe he was wrong. And so he sends his disciples to ask the question, are you the one? Are you the one or should we be expecting somebody else? Uh, one of the things that we find about Jesus is it seems that his ministry, his earthly ministry, uh, it seems that he was more interested in miracles and service than in political power. In fact, if you look at the Luke account of this same, this same story or this same incident, upon being questioned by John's disciples, Jesus then immediately goes out and performs more miracles which is kind of interesting. It's you know, like John the Baptist is thinking, I thought you'd be more kingly. And he's like, hang on, I've got some miracles to do over here. Um, Jesus did not fit John's preconceptions. And look at what he says at verse four. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, at first glance, we might think here that Jesus is a little bit unclear in his response. I mean, after all, this is kind of a simple question. Are you the one that we should expect or should we expect someone else? So this is a yes, no question, right? Yeah, John, no worries. I'm him, Messiah. We're good. I'll get you out of jail, you know. Or... No, boy, you thought I was the Messiah. You're totally wrong. There's another one coming. This, this is kind of simple, and yet the, the answer that Jesus gives back is maybe a little bit cryptic. He could just say, hey, John, don't sweat the prison cell. This is all going to be fine. But instead, he, he says, go back and report. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. What is this all about? And actually what happens here is that Jesus gives an answer that I, I think is really interesting. He gives an answer that comes right off the pages of Scripture. He appeals to the Scripture. He highlights some of the Messianic credentials for John the Baptist so that he could see for himself from the Scriptures the answer to his own question. And so here's what we find. These actually come, this comes from Isaiah 35, verse 5, where it says, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And so what happens is Jesus points to his legitimate credentials, but he points to the scriptures for them rather than just giving a simple yes to the question here. (coughs) And I think there's a point of application uh, for you and for me because one of the things that's really fascinating about this is that Jesus, who is himself God, who whatever he speaks is the very word of God, still finds value in appealing to the scriptures in answering this question. He, and, and in doing so, he gives John some solid ground to stand upon. And that's something that I think you and I need to learn from. That is that when you and I go through crises of faith, when things happen that knock us off of center and cause us to question and doubt and wonder, what God is doing or if he's real or if he's good at all. We need to make sure that we are turning to the word of God to shore ourselves up. In fact, I would tell you this. If you wait until the moment of crisis to turn to the word of God, you're probably going to be too late. As a Christian, I would implore you, you have to be steadily maintaining a diet of the word of God and nourishing your own soul and teaching yourself about God and his goodness and his redemptive plan and what he's after. Because if you just sit here on planet earth and are constantly saturated by the culture around us and what it says and what it thinks and what it does, you will constantly be pulled off of course and you need the word of God to continue to preach to your own soul that it might act like a soul anchor holding you to the center of what God is and what God is doing so that we don't find ourselves with false expectations like many of the Jews and even John the Baptist seemed to have of Jesus. We need to have a regular, sti- uh, regular diet of the word of God and teaching ourselves what God is doing and what he's about. James 1.21 says, Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Christian, you have to be regularly planting the word of God in your life that it will bear fruit in those times of crisis. And I think there are times, too, when others will ask us about their questions and their struggles. And the temptation, oftentimes, is just to give conventional wisdom, platitude of the day, or something of the sort. But when we are faced with these kinds of questions, I think it is a real skill and a necessary ability of Christians to be able to gently take people to the Word of God and let the power and the comfort and the wisdom of God's Word speak for itself. Because it will outlast anything, any words you come up with. When we take somebody to the scriptures, we give them more than just truth for the moment or a drink for a dry time. We take them to a well that they can return to again and again. Have you ever had a friend do this for you? Uh, I can remember again as a, as, a, as a college student getting ready for graduation, not sure where I was going to go or what decision to make about some different offers that I had. And I called my uh, roommate's father and I said hey Phil these are the questions that I'm I'm wrestling with and he took me to Proverbs sixteen nine, you know and he told me uh, Eric you know in his heart a man plans his course but the Lord determines his steps and that has stayed with me since that day there is no answer he could have given me that was his own that would have meant as much or stayed with me as long as that passage that he had on the tip of his tongue because he was one who lived out of the word of God and could gently and lovingly pass it on to others in time and in season. 
There are too many churches today, too, that are teaching Christian principles, but not teaching the word of God itself. And they're just giving, they're just giving people stuff that's easy on the ears, and essentially what they're giving their congregations is cotton candy. You know, it's easy to swallow in the moment, it's easy to take, goes down easy, but it doesn't have any substantive value or nourishing value. And there are other churches that are teaching the word of God well, but people are showing up and they're just getting one spiritual meal a week and they're gorging on Sundays, but they don't know how to nourish themselves on the word of God throughout the week. Therefore, they go away full on Sundays and they're anemic and hungry and wasting away the rest of the week. I want to tell you this. I love that you guys come and that you have an appetite for the word of God on Sundays, but this is not enough. If this is your, if this is your only diet of the word of God, you're starving. You're unhealthy. You need to learn how to nourish yourself and read your Bible for yourself and draw strength from it. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And again, I find it interesting here that even the Lord himself, even Jesus though he could have given a quick answer to John's question, he takes him to the scripture. Jesus values the scripture in his response. One of the beautiful things that we find when we go to the scriptures is we find what John Piper has called the self-attesting power of the scriptures. I, I, I hope you have experienced this, but in my life there have been so many times when I'm going through something, I'm wrestling, I'm struggling, and I go to the scriptures and I find in there God speaks to me through his word. And I hold it and I cherish it. And that act of discovery and learning that for myself, having gone to the scriptures, is so encouraging that it, 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 just, it stays with you your whole life. And you go back to the scriptures and you have these neighborhoods that you've been in before that God has ministered to your soul through them. Maybe one of the most powerful ways that God has done this with me was when I was a sophomore in college. And I was sitting on the gym floor at Biola University, and I was, had some really selfish thoughts about what I wanted out of life. I wanted to be rich, and I wanted to be well-known. No, I mean, that awful. Those, that's, those, were my, those were my sophomore year goals in college. Well-paid, well-known. And I'm sitting there on the, on the gym floor uh, at Biola, and the president, uh, Dr. Clyde Cook, was speaking that day. And he spoke from 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. And it says this, For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And in that single moment, I, the course of my life was really changed. I was confronted with my own selfishness and the ridiculous goals that I had had. And I realized that I was living for something short and thin and small. And God really awakened my heart to pursue ministry, and I'm so glad that he did that. But it was at that moment, and, and interestingly, even that passage that's there in First Peter wasn't the first time it was spoken, but it comes from the prophet Isaiah more than 600 years prior. Such is the word of God that it is lasting, that it endures, that it encourages generation after generation. You need to be nurturing your soul on the word of God, or you will not last those times of crisis what you get on Sunday morning will quite frankly not be enough. So Jesus answers this question. He answers about his ministry, about his own life in a way that appeals to the scripture. And I think that's, that's an example to us. And then he gives this, this uh, sort of this principle here in verse six. He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble 
on account of me. That is on his very self, his very nature. That is we have to take Jesus as he is, not as we wish he were, or not as we would like him to be, or how we think he ought to be. We have to take him as he is. Um, You can go to any mall across America, and there's commonly a store in the mall that is called Build Bear. Have you seen these before? It's a fascinating idea. You can go in and you can say, I can make my own teddy bear here. So I can determine the color of its fur and how plush it is, how soft this thing is, or if it's, how big it is, what color it is, what clothes it's wearing, the expression on its face, you know, whatever. And you can essentially design a bear that you or your child can love. And I think many Christians really have the same way of approaching the Lord. We wish we could just build a God we wish we could just make him as we would like him to be and fashion him in a way that fits our circumstances. And again, if you were given the opportunity to fashion a God of your own making, not only would that be an idol, but that very small idol and that very little God would only fit your circumstance, your perspective, your emotions, your needs, whatever it is that concerns you that moment. You would not fashion a God big enough for your neighbors, for the world, for generations, for cultures, for eternity. You quite frankly would make a God that is way too small and not worthy of worship. I love what Tozer says. He says, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking and worshiping men. That is what happens when the church strays from the word of God and does not take him as he is, but rather tries to make concessions and accommodate him to the relevance of the day. So while Jesus makes no confession, or or no concessions rather, about the fact that he is the Messiah, the one who is to come, the rescuer of God's people, uh, the interesting thing is to me that he's actually very gentle in the way that he deals with John the Baptist here. Or as I've said it in your notes here, he's gracious with his servant this is one of those moments where Jesus could have really gone off the rails. And he, Jesus does at times, right? I mean, he walks into the temple and flips over the tables. He wasn't gentle Jesus that day, right? This is one of those times he really could have gone nuts on John the Baptist. He could have said, listen, John, you're making me look bad. This question's really awkward, especially when you send a convoy of your followers to me in a public situation and ask it out loud for everybody to hear. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? What kind of question is that? This is an irritating question. I would think I would be irritated if I was Jesus. <laughs> I'm ir- easily irritated though. John, or Jesus could have sent John's disciples back with an answer and then he could have talked badly about him. He could have said, you know, this John the Baptist guy, you know, he's still a little raw, a little rough around the edges. He still hasn't got it yet. He could have used another year or two in forerunner prep school. You know, he just, he's not there yet. But Jesus actually speaks well of even this imperfect servant, even in a moment of crisis of faith. Look at verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? 
A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. And so one of the things we find here is that Jesus affirms John's personhood. His personhood. Um, I, I love this. I mean, in a sense, you could just say, Jesus lets John be John. He lets him be himself here. And, and it's almost as though he asks the disciples, what did you expect? Yeah, he's a little blustery at times. He's a prophet. That's kind of what they do. You expected fine clothes and a real easygoing guy? Hey, he's going to be non-conventional. That's what prophets do. They confront the culture with the truths of the word of God. What did you expect? And I think we find this throughout the scriptures too, this, this dignity that God gives to his people to just genuinely be themselves. The Apostle Paul makes a similar statement in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, where he says this, By the grace of God, I am who I am. And I love this passage. I call it Popeye theology, actually, because of the statement there. But, but Paul is basically dealing with his own story. Here he is, one who was a persecutor of Christians, right? He was standing there at the feet of Stephen when he was killed as a martyr. We're told in Acts that he was one who went from church to church breathing out murderous threats against the church. You could almost say that Paul was the ISIS of the day. That's his story. That's his background. And yet God intervened and saved him and brought him into the faith. And here he is, the chief apologist of the church, the leader in the early church in the first century. And he's wrestling with, this is my story. This is who I've been. But this is who God has called me to be. And he's sort of uncomfortable with this reality. And he kind of shrugs his shoulders as if to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's my story. And he trusts in the sovereignty of God to, to use it all as it has unfolded. Even in the writing of scripture, we find that God allows the personality of the authors to come through in their writing. We've got four gospels, four accounts that look at the life of Christ. And they're unique in the way that they're written. The voice and the background and the heritage of each of the authors are allowed to come through and to give shape to the text even while they're being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus not only affirms John's personhood, but we see here that he allows the uniqueness of his individual servants to come through in their various and respective ministries. And I think that's important for you and I to pick up on, that we would give people room to simply be themselves. Being gracious with one another. Even while all of us do pursue Christ-likeness, the reality is that we will not become a homogenous group of Christian clones but we will still bear distinctives that God has uniquely put into each one of us. Different gifts, different passions, different stories, different weaknesses, different struggles, and unique callings. I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says, there are no dittos among souls. There is not another one of you anywhere. Even if you have a twin, there is no twin soul. There is no twin you. You are a unique individual that God has made. And as Christians, I think this is something that we need to get good at, which is the ability to look at one another and say, you are not like me, and I can love you and celebrate your distinctiveness and, and be joyful about who it is that you are. So Jesus is incredibly gracious to John the Baptist. He gives him room to simply be himself. 
And he also affirms John's ministry. Look at verse 10 here. <clears throat> this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. Boy, does that continue today. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And so basically what we see here is that Jesus isn't unsettled by John's questions. But rather he uses it as an opportunity to teach and to instruct and to remind John and his disciples and all those in earshot of the credentials of the Messiah. And so even this crisis of faith fits pretty neatly and tidily in the sovereignty of God in terms of what he is doing at this present moment and showing people who he is. And so Jesus quotes then from the prophet Malachi reminding the people that this is how God planned it from the beginning. Where he says, this is the one of whom it is, it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. And so he's able to kind of go back to a passage of scripture again and show what God has planned and that even in this fits within it. God had promised the forerunner for the Messiah. John was that man. I, this is one of those moments where you look at it and you go, you know, Jesus, sometimes you say some really big things. And here he basically is saying there is no mortal person on earth that is greater than John. And I, I'll be honest with you. I have questions about that. I, I, in my mind, I go, what about King David? Or Abraham? Or Moses? Or There's some pr- pretty big fellows that came ahead of this guy, and yet Jesus seems to say that this is the man. Um, so that's just one of my many questions I take with me to heaven and go, I don't understand this one, Lord. Hopefully he'll be gracious with me. I think there will be a long line of people in the question line, but I get to be up front. Um, And then Jesus really kind of shows the childishness of the critics of John and of others. Uh, Look what he says here in verse 16. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Boy, if there is ever a good summary of just the nature of mankind, here it is right here, you know. John comes as an ascetic Renouncing the, the clothing of the day, the food of the day. He's out there in camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist in the desert, which sounds terribly uncomfortable to me. Eating locusts and honey, an awkward looking fella. And they don't like this guy. And he's a little weird. Granted, Jesus comes, collegial, interacting with people, sharing meals, to the beverage of the day, the food of the day, interacting with whomever. From the, from the highest folks in society to the lowest. And they say, sorry, he's too friendly with the wrong kinds of people. Well, wait a minute here. Who can't win for losing, right? Basically, this picture that Jesus gives here of these, these children playing the song, you know, they play this kind of song and, 
and people won't dance. They sing a song of mourning and that doesn't fit either. And basically the statement that comes across is, yeah, you know what? God just won't march to the beat of our drum. True. That's true. He marches to his own beat. He does what he will. I think if you were to summarize this little story that Jesus gives here, you could call it the parable of the brats. And that is what we are, really, as a culture, as people. We are brats who, once again, want a God of our own making to do things as we think would fit right. But we are resistant to accommodate our own heart to God as we find him. As we find him. We have to take God on his own terms. And uh, I think one of my favorite quotes of all time, maybe of any author, is from St. Augustine that we named our youngest child after. And he says this, God, being God, offends human pride. Yeah. God, just being God, offends human pride. Because it means that I'm not. And what I think is right and good and fair and how things ought to be is inconsequential compared to how God thinks they are. So God may not fit our preconceptions or our heart's desire, but we have to take him on his terms. And then Jesus kind of closes out his teaching here with this particular, almost a proverb. He says this, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. And there's a lot of different ways that we might say this today. We might say something like, uh, yeah, you know, a tree by its fruit. Yep. The proof's in the pudding. Or time will tell. And Jesus says the same kind of thing. He promises that the wisdom of his ways one day will be self-evident. And that is a hope that we need to hold on to because I think the crisis of faith for many maybe in this room and many around the world is not so much whether there is a God, but oftentimes the question is, is the God that we find in the scriptures any good to us? It's not whether he exists, it's do we like the way he exercises his care and his authority and his management of the world? It may be not whether is God that we find in the scriptures, is he a savior, but we might feel like, has he really saved me from enough hardship in life? Or the question is not so much whether he is a king, but it's just, do I like the way he rules his kingdom? And so I think we constantly, as we look at the world with our narrow, very narrow perspective, we can constantly say, I wish God would do things differently than he does. But the assurance that we find here at the end is that wisdom is proved right by her deeds. In the end, we will see the wisdom of God. So he may not fit our preconceptions, our heart's desires, but all of us, John the Baptist and us as well, we have to take him as he is. His wisdom will prove evident in the end. Let's pray. Our Father, I'm thankful for the questions that we find in Scripture because they are our own questions. Probably each and every one of us in the room, Lord, can think of a particular time when we questioned your nature or what you were doing or what you weren't doing. Certainly a, a people group looking for a king and found a Savior preparing to die, we're confused. And so 2,000 years later, we can look back and we can, we can glimpse the wisdom of God 
that you weren't just saving from Roman oppression, you were saving from sin, a bigger salvation. And so I pray, Lord, that in this moment, whatever crisis of faith, whatever struggle we may bring, whatever question about your nature or your activity that we might bring, that we would be able to, with faith, because of the teaching of the scripture, hold out and know that wisdom will prove right in the end. We will see what you are up to one day, even if not today. So Lord, comfort us when we see tragedies like we woke up to this morning. May we trust in you, trust in your wisdom. We pray in Christ's name, amen.